The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 uh, this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, we'll project an outline, but it might be helpful to have the text in front of you. Uh, so before we get to God's Word, let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your Word uh, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to hear your word preached and read. Uh, we're thankful to have it in translations that we can understand. Uh, we're grateful to have a sense of who you are as you're revealed through the pages of Scripture. And I pray this morning that you would bless uh, the reading and the hearing of your word. Um, I pray that you would speak to our current situations, both personally, uh, as a church, as a society. I pray that you would, uh, would speak life and that you would uh, be active among us by your Spirit. I pray that you would break down any uh, resistance that we have to you, whether it be overt or subtle. Um, I pray that by your Spirit you would penetrate those things and help us to hear your word in fresh ways and to respond to you in faith and in joy. Uh, bless this time, we pray. Amen. So we're going to take a step back a little bit. Uh, we're halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes, so I thought it would be good to just take a look at the big themes that we've seen so far, just in case it's been a lot, it's been overwhelming, there's a lot of information to take in. So it's always good to take a step back and to take the 10,000-foot view. In my own personal reading of Scripture, that's often what I'll do is I'll focus on reflecting on several verses and then take, another, take a step back uh, in order to, to recapture the big the big themes. So in no particular order, I just want to talk through some of these. Uh, First, what we've seen in Ecclesiastes is that life is a mist, Uh, that the story started long before us, the story will go on long after us, and that we as human beings are not a permanent fixture on the earth. Second is we can't secure permanence by striving or by toiling. As hard as we might work, as much as we might achieve, as winsome as we might be, uh, we can't secure permanence by striving or by toil. Third, we've seen that wisdom is superior to folly, that the author, the teacher, is not saying that we should just do whatever we want because what's the point anyway? That's not the ethic of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is superior to folly, but wisdom can't ultimately secure our existence uh, before God. Fourth, I think we've seen that we can experience joy even among, uh, amid the impermanence of life. We can experience joy in our work. We can experience joy in our relationships. In all aspects of our existence, we can experience joy even though we are not permanent. And finally, at least from my perspective, we've seen that the world is full of injustice, it's full of extortion, it's full of human striving. And on the one hand, we don't need to be surprised by this, we don't need to be disillusioned by the fact that that exists. 
nor do we have to be swept away by it. We don't have to participate in that, uh, that injustice, that extortion. So we live between these two extremes. We don't have to be surprised by sin in a fallen world, but we don't have to be swept away by it either. Um, we can live with a simple joy and satisfaction, and we can actually live in such a way that we're occupied with joy that God gives us. That's actually one of my favorite verses in the whole book is the end of chapter 5, where it says that um, basically that God has so occupied the person's heart with joy that they don't even consider the length of their life, that they're so wrapped up in the joy that God gives um, that, that they don't even consider the length of their days. Now, turning to chapter 7, we're, we're looking at a pretty massive and challenging chapter, both in terms of its size and in terms of its structure. Um, it's challenging in the seeming contradictions, and it's got a puzzling perspective. Um, wisdom literature uh, requires a large dose of patience and a large dose of humility if we're going to hear it well. Um, and that's what we're going to need today. We need to be able to hear things in ways that are not frantic or frenetic. We need to be patient, uh, humble listeners. And I think that's where uh, the real challenge is and also the real reward. So a superficial glance is just not going to yield any positive results. And I think of like in a relational context, when we don't listen to God's word well, when we sort of rush to what we think is going to be said or what we think it might be saying, we're sort of the equivalent of the person who's saying, I know, I know, I know, but we're not actually listening, which can be, uh, which can be frustrated when somebody's trying to finish, finish a sentence. So I think this chapter, among other chapters we've had preached recently, is just going to require us to be patient and, and to try to listen well, and because of the size of the chapter, uh, it's 29 verses, we're not going to be able to dive deeply into every section in the short time that we have. I don't know what the exact algorithm is, but as the number of degrees go up in the weather, so it's probably like 92 degrees by the time you're listening to this, the ability to sustain attention increasingly goes down. Um, the weather aside, there's just so much in this chapter that would uh, require our attention. Um, we're just going to dive into two, I think, significant sections. Um, and I think that that will inform our reading of the rest of the chapter. So, um, in spite of the complexity of chapter 7, I think that there's a thread running throughout the chapter which is we want to embrace a balanced perspective before God. And as we see these truths unfold, not just here, but in the entire book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to come back to what I believe is the main point in this particular chapter, which is embracing a life of balance before God is a pathway to joy. Now, when I talk about balance, uh, just in case that word is a little bit... Uh, troubling or has certain connotations for you. What I mean is we're always going to be gravitating toward extremes. We're going to gravitate toward an either-or perspective. And I think that wisdom, I think what you're going to see here in this chapter is wisdom is calling us to this radical middle uh, where it's 
It's a both and. We have to embrace both of those perspectives. We have to hold them in balance. We even have to hold them in a certain amount of tension. So that's what I mean uh, by balance. So there's three ways that I see that we need to be balanced. First, uh, in the first seven verses, we need to embrace our inevitable end. Second is going to be that we need to embrace humble submission. And third, we need to embrace balanced righteousness. So I'm going to work through those. And because of the size of the chapter in my slides, I've put some key verses that helped me to to focus in on those ideas. So if those are a benefit to you, I I hope that you'll you'll take a look at those. Um, So first, let's talk about uh, verses 1 to 7. And I'm going to read it, and and then we'll get into it. So the teacher says, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living take it to heart. I should pause there for a second to say that what I uh, <laughs> admired about Jay and about Drew last week, in addition to their willingness to participate, was their remarkable composure. So I would like to pre-disappoint you Uh, and say that I have no such composure. So there may be several takes. There may be times where I cut off screen. But um, I I think it will be fairly obvious to you as we go through the passage. So anyway, I'm going to read verse 3 again. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man insane and a bribe corrupts the heart. So just a surface reading of the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes would seem to undo any and all that we've said so far about joy or enjoyment, about the joy that that God gives us in life. And it would certainly be easy and understandable to even take these verses as contradicting that call to joy that we've seen throughout the book so far. So what is actually being said here? Because I don't think it is a contradiction at all. And when I say balance, I think that we take these two extremes and we have to find a way to live with balance. Overall, I think these first seven verses are saying that the wise person lives with a sober and serious perspective on life. And it has to do with how a person is centered. And let me talk a little bit about what that means. So I think the key verse here is verse 2, which says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now that word heart, depending on your translation, it might also be translated as mind, uh, but it's sort of a consistent word through the passage, which is why it can be a little frustrating when they translate it in different ways. Um, The heart here is... It's the seat of one's inner life. 
And the Bible talks about this all the time, and I'm sure that lots of passages rush to mind that help to flesh this out for you. I think of Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This statement that we love God with the totality of who we are, every single part of our being. Um, And that's what we're saying here. The heart is the seat of one's inner life, and it's an acknowledgement at the deepest level. This verse, uh, it says... Uh, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. What that means is we understand at the deepest level that we will not live forever. And while this is initially a depressing, uh, troubling thought, we know it's true. We can embrace it Or uh, we can foolishly live as though it doesn't exist. And this is where we could have all kinds of ranting about how our, our culture is always trying to sell us more life and it's always trying to hide aging. It's trying to hide death from us. And I think what Ecclesiastes is saying here is that the wise person takes this to heart. They understand at the deepest level that we will not go on forever. And we can live, we can still live with joy in the midst of that, but we're not going to be constantly in pursuit of that joy. We're going to have a sober uh, realization that, that, uh, that our time will ultimately be over. So the same word is used in verse 3. It says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So it's that inner life. Verse 4 uses it twice. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So again, it's this inner disposition toward those things. Um, it's how you're, how you're driven. It's the things that you're centered on. Verse 7 is where things kind of reach critical mass in terms of what one gives their heart over to. It says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So this is a person who sees injustice and is disillusioned by it, so much so that they are actually corrupted at the deepest level when they are encountered by that injustice. So um, the key there, I think, is verse 2. Now, in verse 1, the person considers the importance of their good name more than they consider mere possessions or the status that comes from those possessions. And I think Jay spoke to this so well last week. It was so powerful. Um, The person who has a mind toward the importance of their good name more than the status that comes from their possessions. And the passage goes on to describe that it's better to embrace our inevitable end than to merely live for the moment. And this isn't a morbid, depressing call to despair at all, but it's an invitation to be centered on sober realism. And such realism is going to keep the wise person from foolishness. So as we look at our society, I just think that you can't bury your head in the sand and pretend that there aren't really negative things going on. And I think that sort of gets at what this passage is about, that the world is an unjust place. There are very serious things that happen, and those things need to be met with a serious attitude. 
So practical examples of what this perspective might look like are going to be offered throughout the rest of the chapter and even in other places in Ecclesiastes. But here's one that the teacher gives. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Now, this doesn't mean that we go looking for rebuke. So I am not uh, a a morbid person. Like, I enjoy hearing affirming things. I imagine some of you do as well. So I'm not this brooding, looking for rebuke kind of person. Um, I think what it's saying here is not that you should never be happy and not that you should never experience that kind of affirmation. What it's saying is, Even a negative thing, like a rebuke, like I don't think anybody really likes to be rebuked. Um, A rebuke is negative, but if it's received from a wise person, that's a positive, which is contrasted with the song, which is a positive thing, which comes from a fool, which is a negative thing. So if you think positive, negative, positive, negative, uh, that's sort of the contrast that's being set up, that it's better to receive uh, a rebuke from a wise person because the rebuke of the fool, or excuse me, the song of the fool um, is sort of the spiritual equivalent of cotton candy uh, or like a Snickers bar, um, that it is not fuel that can sustain you. And that's the image that's used. It's actually a fun little, I think it's a simile here. Uh, It's the crackling of thorns under a pot. So um, as a former young boy, um, lowercase y young, not uppercase y young, um, as as a former young boy, I can recall times where I liked to throw every conceivable thing that I could into a fire. Um, And I think that some of you are either living that experience right now with yourself or your young kids, or um, have experienced it at some point. So I can personally attest to the fact that thorns under the pot would be very impressive for like 10 seconds. So there's popping, um, it's even explosive. Like it has the appearance that something impressive is happening, but there's no lasting value to it. It's not it's not lasting fuel. The fire is over pretty quickly. You can do the same thing with all sorts of different types of branches. In fact, I encourage you on the next slightly cooler day, just go throw all kinds of things into the fire to, um, to, to live out obedience to Ecclesiastes. But that's what the passage is saying here. The f- song of the fool can be temporarily satisfying. It can be something that maybe even looks like it's impressive, but ultimately it's of no value. So it's better for you to hear the rebuke of a wise person. So the passage so far calls us to embrace our inevitable end and to live with serious, sober-minded reflection and realism. So we turn now to verses 8 to 14, which I'll, I'll read. And this is going to be in addition to embracing our inevitable end and living with sober-minded realism, we're also going to embrace humble submission. So let's read verses 8 to 14. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than arrogance of spirit. 
Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So the passage continues this line of reasoning that has been through Ecclesiastes so far, which is God alone controls the earth. God alone controls life. He controls human beings. He controls human destiny. And we can choose to live in such a way that is in harmony with that design and that reality, or we can choose to live with a certain amount of disdain for God and his design which is ultimately going to lead us, as we've seen in previous chapters, it's ultimately going to lead us to disdain for our neighbor, and it's going to lead us um, to, to not loving our neighbors well. So um, whether we decide to live in harmony or in disdain, we can't get around the central fact that God alone made heaven and earth, and God alone controls all things. Now we can, and examples abound, we can try to pursue gain, right? Um, We can try to exert some measure of control in the life that we have. And it might even appear to be uh, successful in some measure. But I think what this text in particular is calling us to is humble submission. So verses 8 and 9 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. That's verses 8 and 9. So if anger here in this text is the opposite of patience, the wise person embraces patience. And what is patience ultimately? Um, Translated elsewhere in the 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter as long-suffering. You bear with someone. You bear with situations that are difficult. And I think that you resist the urge to exert control. So the image for anger here, um, it's translated a couple different ways, but what I, um, it says that anger resides in the bosom of fools. It could also be translated as anger sits in the lap of fools. So, The image for anger here is like an infant sitting in a parent's lap. And the idea is that the fool is the person who actually cultivates and cares for that anger, if that makes sense. So anger as an individual act is very different from a person who is actively cultivating anger. Um, And... It's different than a person who is just oriented and centered on seizing control. And this person is always going to be frustrated and angry that the world, the people around them, every single thing cannot be bent to their will. 
So the wise person actually shuns that attitude. They relinquish any sense of ultimate control and they embrace humble submission. Verse 10 seems to stand out as kind of odd, um, but it's, it's a helpful, uh, I mean, like all verses in the Bible, it's helpful, but I find it particularly interesting from a wisdom standpoint. Uh, it seems to stand out, but it's saying that human beings ought not to say, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask those questions. Um, I think that there is a natural tendency to see that the good old days were always better than the present days. Uh, so Mike Stone and I were just talking about Red Rover and what a great game it was and how he was in fifth grade when that awesome game got banned. And I think about dodgeball and do they even, are they even allowed to play dodgeball anymore? And we hearken back to the glory days when kids were 10 feet tall and tough and strong and independent. And we always look back on those days. I think about Saturday morning cartoons and the tragedy that my kids experience by not having the joy of several hours of, of cartoons that they can watch. But there is a tendency, I think, on all human, uh, in all humans to think that the good old days were better than they actually were. Because the good old days weren't always good, and we can't possibly imagine all of the future prospects that God has for the earth, for his people, for individuals, um, because we aren't God. And I think that's ultimately what it's about. It reminds me of the Israelites leaving Egypt, that I, if, if my math is correct, they were in Egypt for about 400 years as a people. And during that time, they experienced oppression and slavery and um, these building projects, which are all built on their backs. And God hears their cry and he responds and he liberates them in the Exodus. And then about 15 minutes go by and they're not just grumbling about their place. They're actually remembering Egypt in positive terms. Oh, remember when there was meat in every pot and all the days of glory of Egypt that we've been robbed of. And I think that, that the human tendency is to forget how negative things might have been and to look back with this sort of um, rose-colored glasses. Um, and even in our own times, I believe that it is a form of arrogance to think that any period of history was as bad or as good as it could possibly ever be. Um, for the simple reason that I think that our perspective is limited to our experience. So when I say the good old days were good, what I mean is the good old days, whatever those were, were good for me. I'm not taking a broad uh, perspective of what those things might have been like for other people. So we're constrained by our own limited understanding. And the teacher is saying, it's not from wisdom that you ask that question. Why were the old days better than these? Um, I think of uh, Sandy Koufax. If you're not a baseball fan, I miss baseball a lot. So I'm going to just talk about baseball here. Sandy Koufax had like a five-year period in his career. He was a pitcher for the Dodgers. Um, just a dominant, dominant reign for those five years. And then he retired at the age of like 30 and it's funny when they interview him now because he'll say, the older I get, the better I was. 
And I think that that sums up perfectly what is being said here, that you sort of look back on the glory days when giants roamed the earth. And, and I think the teacher is saying that it's not from wisdom that you look to those perspectives. Humble submission acknowledges our own limited understanding of the past And it also looks forward with hope and with vital optimism for what God can do in any period of history. I think the key verses here are 13 and 14. It says that, Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So I think that when we live in humble submission, when we recognize that our lives and our experiences are a vapor, we're going to live with this sense of awe for who God is and for what he controls. God alone possesses fullness of wisdom. God alone maintains control over the affairs of the earth and of human beings. And this should compel humility in us. It shouldn't be this knuckling under resistance to God. It should be um, liberating um, that we can actually embrace this God who controls all things, and we can find balance in terms of, yep, I don't control everything, and that's a good thing uh, because I can't even manage the affairs of my own life to say nothing of the universe, so it's good that somebody else is in control. That can compel us to joy and to humility. Um, So, I think that we embrace humble submission. And that's the opposite of what Ecclesiastes describes in terms of striving or gain, that we don't have to, we don't have to engage in those things. We can, submit, uh, we can submit to the Lord who controls all things. And finally, in our last uh, big section here, so we embrace our inevitable end. We embrace humble submission. Finally, we embrace balanced righteousness. And this is a bigger section And um, we're we're just going to dive right in. So I'm going to read verses 15 to 29. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have uh, realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness." And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. 
Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the preacher or the teacher goes on to observe extremes in terms of one's righteous and wise behavior. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. And you remember, this is Solomon talking. He's seen it all. Very impressive human being. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil. And what does the teacher conclude from this finding? And this is one of those really odd things that the Bible says, where I read that and I thought, that can't be what it means. It says, don't be overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Now, I don't know about you, but the category of overly righteous has never been a problem for me. Like, I've never been even close to that ballpark. And it seems kind of an odd thing for a Bible or the Bible to say that we should not be overly righteous. Um, because the Bible does seem at times to be calling us to greater and greater degrees of righteous behavior. So, so what's going on here? Um, I think what's happening is it means to not be engaged in what I'm going to call destructive perfectionism. And I want to put some flesh on what that, what that means. So the person who is overly righteous, I immediately go to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So the person who is overly righteous, it doesn't mean that there's an actual quality to their righteousness. What it means is they're engaged in this kind of destructive perfectionism. So if you go to Matthew 23, we don't have time to go there right now. If you go to Matthew 23, you'll see several examples of where Jesus says, do what the religious leaders say, like right in the opening verses of the chapter. He'll say, they sit in the seat of Moses, you do what they say, but do not do what they do. And again, in Matthew 23, 23, he'll, um, he'll just talk about their pretense. He'll talk about how they tithe their mint and their dill and their cumin. So they're like exacting and they're very carefully tithing these things. But they've neglected matters of justice, matters of faithfulness, matters of compassion. And it would be easy for us as Christians to say like, well, that's just dumb and they should ignore those things and focus on matters of justice. What Jesus actually says is, you should have done one without neglecting the other, so that they could have actually been faithful to God in their tithing and also faithful to God in their exercising justice and compassion for their neighbors. Um, so that, to me, helps to flesh out this idea of destructive perfectionism. It's an extreme and it's one we want to avoid. I uh, used to teach fourth grade, and there was a student one day who, um, she, she looked sick, and she was clearly struggling. She was having a hard time keeping her eyes open, so she went to the nurse, and um, I'm not an attentive human being to any of that sort of stuff, so I, yeah, go to the nurse. You, you clearly look like you're not well. And the nurse, because of her sensitivity and awareness and the fact that she had daughters, had realized that her French braid was too tight. 
and that it was actually giving her this crushing headache because her hair was literally pulled uh, too tight. So they were able to, to loosen and, and rebraid the hair. Um, I didn't have a daughter at that point. I still don't know if I would have picked up on that, but, but at that point, we were just swimming in a sea of boys, and I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. But that's an illustration of somebody who's just wound way too tight. So it's, it's um, in the spiritual sense, this destructive perfectionism is somebody who, I guess Jesus would use the word whitewashed tomb. That's somebody who's all about keeping up appearances and nitpicky forms of righteousness. And I don't want to name particulars because I don't want to be seen to be talking people out of conviction, but hopefully you know uh, what I mean. So, so the teacher is advising us, don't be overly righteous. Like, don't be that type of person who's so exacting, so meticulous in their faith that they actually ignore the people around them gives you a, uh, a spiritual headache, and hardly uh, joyful, at least in my experience. Um, but before we rush headlong into that extreme, the teacher cautions us to not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So there are legitimate ethical stands that Christians need to take. There are things that are legitimate cause for conviction, and I respect that, and I love to talk about those things. Um, We have convictions as a family and as individuals in my family, so I don't want to be seen as talking anybody out of those things. A lot of them for me come out of, there's a a reading of the Bible, obviously, that's the foundation, but some of it is a function of personality, that I can't be around certain things, and I can't engage in even little bits of certain types of behavior. And I would never go to the extent of calling those things sinful, um, and I think that's where you run into trouble. As soon as you impose that standard on somebody else, you're a little bit toward... Uh, this idea of destructive perfectionism. I think that there's ways that we can talk about that, and I'm deliberately avoiding (laughs) any particulars, lest I be misunderstood. I love to talk about those things, and if you have things that are an individual conviction, I'm happy to hear that, and I respect, uh, because of family background, because of temperament and personality, that there are things that we can't be around. What the teacher is suggesting is this balanced approach. Like, don't rush off that cliff in terms of that destructive behavior, but also don't be a fool. Like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater at the same time. So there are legitimate ethical stands that you need to take, but I think we need to be careful about how we walk between those extremes. And in the midst of it all, I think we need to embrace the God who makes us righteous. That none of this is a philosophy apart from God. So in the midst of these embracing balances, we want to embrace the God who embraces perfect justice and perfect compassion as well. So the teacher goes on to say it this way, it's good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So what the teacher is saying here is the person who fears God, the person who reveres or is in awe of God, is going to avoid those extremes. And I think that relational presence with God is a key factor. As I think about people, um, you know, I'll just take the religious leaders of Jesus' day, 
they didn't recognize what God was doing in their midst. So there was a loss of vital personal connection to the Lord there. And then in the same way, people who are just all about license, it's all grace, I can do whatever I want. Those people have also neglected this, this idea of fearing or, or being in awe of God. So you have to walk those two extremes. Finally, as we embrace a life of balance before God, we embrace this righteousness. And we recognize, verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. But also in the next verse, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So we have to walk in between those two realities. And this balanced righteousness in my mind is going to produce grace. So practically speaking, the uh, verses 21 and 22, it says, we ought not to take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now that's not a shaming thing. It's just reality that if you're offended by somebody else gossiping about you, it might be good to take a step back and consider the possibility that at some point in your life, you also did the same thing. And that's not to shame anybody. It's just to give us this gracious perspective. Wisdom is superior to folly, and it is more of a protection than 10 rulers in a city. That's what the text says. But there's nobody who really does it perfectly, right? There's no genuine article except uh, for Jesus. So we need to walk that path with a gracious perspective. And again, the teacher says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And the answer to that question, nobody can. And realizing that wisdom gives strength, but that it is deep and it's far away from us, should produce a grace in us in the ways that we view others, much in the same way that God shows that grace and that compassion and that generosity to us. That we are all walking this path before Jesus and we are doing it under his grace and by means of his sacrifice. And as his people, we want to be extending that same grace and that same generosity to find the mercy of God that we have found for ourselves. So the teacher closes the chapter by searching, uh, describing the search that honestly has been going on through the whole book. If you go back to uh, 113, he's trying to seek and to search out all that's done under heaven. Here, he specifically seeks wisdom to know the the schemes of things, is the way that it's translated. And what he settles on is that the one who is ensnared by folly is more bitter than death. And that's the sickening tragedy that Jay spoke to last week. The illustration of working overtime for the yacht was just a perfect illustration of that principle. Um, The person who is ensnared by those things, that's more bitter bitter than death. And the teacher also finds that though his soul has sought repeatedly to find an upright man or woman, he's come up short in his search. But he doesn't call God into question. This is an interesting thing. He actually calls human beings into question. So it ends with this phrase, though God has made mankind upright, 
they have sought after many schemes. And that, I think, reflects the warped image bearing of God, that God has created man upright, but they have sought continually after their own schemes. So that's the search, and the outcome is um, that mankind is just scheming. Now, I'm going to pause here, and this, if you're, uh, if you're keeping notes in terms of preaching, this is not how you end a sermon. But this is where the chapter ends. So I want to talk just for a second about verses 26 to 29 in particular, because even as I read it out loud, it causes a visceral reaction uh, in me because it can seem at face value to be anti-women. So I want to talk about this for a minute because I am very sensitive to um, people who have had the Bible misused to marginalize them. And I am even more sensitive to people who have had religious institutions misuse the Bible and in some ways abuse them and try to marginalize them. So I want to speak to this. If you reacted to that, um, this is just a couple minutes for you. Um, And I'm happy to talk about this more, but I think it does need to be addressed. So I just want to address this for a second. First and foremost, I don't think it's a comment on women at all. So if you read it that way as being anti-women, I do not believe that it is a negative comment on women. Uh, The personification of wisdom is a literary device, um, verse 26. Uh, It's no doubt not the metaphor that we would use. It's not the personification we would use, but it would be typical of wisdom literature in the ancient world. So if you look at Proverbs 8, you'll you'll see um, a fair amount of this type of personification. Um, So it's not necessarily offensive in this context. Second, the teacher is offering his perspective. So it's very similar to Psalm 37.25, where the psalmist says, He has never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. So he's saying he has never seen that, which doesn't mean that it has never happened. So does that mean it never happened? We don't know. He's offering his perspective. So the teacher here is offering his perspective on the issue. Um, Third, and as challenging as this might be, and I want to say this as sensitively as possible, we need to see past the metaphor to the intention. So very similar to what Jay spoke to last week in terms of the, it's a very stark image to talk about a stillborn child. And that can create a lot of difficulty for people. And I, even for myself, to, I, I react to that. And I have to discipline myself to see past the metaphor to its intention. So um, the purpose here is the teacher saying that he turned his heart to seek wisdom. And all of his searching, he found one in a thousand men who are upright. Now, I am a math teacher, and I'm on summer vacation. But for you... I did a little bit of math. I know, I know what you're thinking. I live to serve. One out of a thousand is 0.1%. So that's hardly a positive commentary on men. So it's not as though the teacher is saying that there is um, a lot of upright men that he encountered. So the purpose of the entire section here is verse 29 that God made mankind upright, but mankind has engaged in many schemes. So I just wanted to address that for a second um, because I think 
depending on your experiences, you might hear that in a particular way. And I'm happy to talk more about any of this should you, um, should you find something like that to be a stumbling block, because I do understand that. So as we conclude, it might be helpful to talk about what we actually do with a text like this moving forward. And I have no better advice than to pick something that resonated with you in the passage and to reflect on that more extensively. And I think this is what wisdom literature requires, that you have to look at things carefully in order to hear it well. And at least for me in my experience, when I listen to a sermon, I kind of, I like to think of like somebody sitting on a surfboard just waiting for the right wave. So I'm always looking for a single significant idea that God is tweaking me in some way, that it could be a a word of affirmation, it could be encouragement, it could be rebuke. We're all different and we're all going to experience that in different ways. So we want to be receptive to what God is doing inside us as we reflect on these passages. So for you, it might be you need to think about the balance between joy and sorrow. That if you're a person who can only experience frivolous happiness and you can't talk about more profound things, that's an imbalance. And I think wisdom is calling us out of that imbalance into greater balance. If you're a person who is on either extreme of the license to sin versus destructive perfectionism, you have to sort of meditate on where am I in that balance? Do I sense God calling me in a particular direction? And at least for me, I pick something that resonates or I pick something that makes me a little defensive. Like I might feel tweaked a little bit by an idea and it might just be that I offended you in the way I worded something. So let's sort that out for sure. Um, But if there's something in the text where you just felt like God was was really stirring something in there, you want you want to respond to that. So uh, I'm going to pray in conclusion, and then I am going to read part of Psalm 90 as our benediction today. So let's pray, and then I'll read the benediction. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.